Hello, readers. Jonathan Rosen is a writer, philosopher, and chess grandmaster who has competed internationally with world-class players and was a three-time British chess champion from 2004 through 2006. And he has a new book out about his life in chess and beyond. It's called The Moves That Matter, a chess grandmaster on the game of life. Get it now wherever books are sold. Jonathan, thank you for the time today. Why is chess such a great metaphor for life? I'll give you the off-the-cuff responses because it's because of its history, because of its which is about you know thirteen hundred plus years old, because of its global resonance. It's it's one of the most popular games in the world, um, because of its strategic depth, which uh, connects it to so many spheres of life. Because of its competitive nature, which um, creates a certain amount of drama and excitement. Because in the symbolism of the king dying through checkmate, it's in some ways a sublimation of our own deaths that's at stake. So it's a very sort of existentially meaningful game. Because of the responsibility it gives us um, to to play good moves uh, throughout the game and trying to stay alive one move at a time. And because it's beautiful, um, there's sort of an intellectual beauty in the heart of the game that uh, is spellbinding for those who know it. And the better you get at the game, the more that beauty kind of speaks to you. Jonathan, what was your introduction to chess? Um, I was introduced by my family. Uh, They disagree about exactly who did it, but it was a combination of my mother, my uncles, my grandfather, my brother. And um, they were just just a board game like any other at home, really. Um, but it sort of took on something more over time. It became something greater than a board game. It, it became a kind of culture or a form of life that I was glad to be part of. And through the school uh, giving me a chance to play and then being spotted by a local kind of talent scout and then eventually playing for my country. And, you know, one thing led to another. And um, I guess I just got more and more into it. Now, you've been out of the competitive version of the game for a while, but you do write that the thing that you miss most about no longer uh, being a part of that competitive chess-playing world is the experience of concentration. Why is that? I think concentration is a precious feature of any life well-lived. I think you can't really feel properly alive unless you have a chance to concentrate. And the world today makes it quite difficult to concentrate. It's a very distracting place. Technologically, it's distracting because we're we're saturated by forms of media that actually feed off of our attention and are, are distracting by design. Um, but also just the old-fashioned things of you know advertisements, life being too busy in general, and uh, our time is often fractured, so our mind rarely gets a chance to settle into a concentrated state. But what you find is when you are concentrated, uh, life deepens. There is a sense of being more fully alive, and I think uh, chess gives you that experience in a reliable, regular way, um, and, and is all the pr- more precious for that. And that speaks to something that you describe so eloquently in the book as positive freedom, and uh, I really enjoyed that part of things. Jonathan, what did chess teach you about the real purpose of planning in life? Wow, that's a good one, because we there's a lovely... Uh, sort of car bumper sticker line that says we don't um, plan to fail, we just fail to plan. And I started reflecting on that a little bit and and at first it seemed a little um, too trite and too basic because I thought 
that's not really how life goes. You make your plan and then invariably you change it, right? So something's not right here. What's going on? So I, I looked into that a bit more. And what I realized through my chess experience is that planning is, is really a way of mobilizing the will. It's not so much about setting steps in place that you follow uh, diligently. It's more about having a sort of orientation for who you are and what you want to achieve. And that in itself is a kind of energy or power that you can build upon. So it's really planning is primarily about giving yourself a sense of direction and purpose and mobilizing your will behind that. But it's also something inherently flexible. It's something that you, know, you, make, a cha- you make a plan so that you can have something that you can change. Uh, and that's a bit paradoxical because we assume a plan is something you must stick to. But I think on the contrary, a plan is like the map you need to get to the destination, but it's, it's not the actual territory itself. It's a great starting point, uh, but so much happens along the way that you have to be flexible enough to change those plans if need be on the fly. Yes. I mean, and that's true. I mean, we know this from our own experience. Um, almost, you know, unless the situation is very controlled, in, in most of life, a situation is so complex with so many variables and so many people that you can't predict, um, that you, you really would be very foolish to stick to a plan. Um, but you'd also be foolish not to have a plan at all. It's as if you need a kind of orienting point, a kind of touchstone from which to make your decision. Okay, this is our plan. Now, why are we not following that? So that, that question can lead to a better place than just having no idea where you are or what to do. You write about the process of achieving various titles of success in chess, and that includes Grandmaster, of course, which you can infer from the title of the book is what you made, and then also Super Grandmaster. Is making Grandmaster one of those memories that is burned into your memory for eternity? <laughs> so it's, so it's a strong way of putting it, but um, it's certainly a big lifetime achievement, and uh it was a moment of pride and satisfaction because I'd been working towards it for a long time. I think there are now, um, depending on how you count it and when you count it, there's something in the vicinity of 1,500 grandmasters in the world. So although it's quite prestigious, it's by no means you know, rarefied. Um, but it, does, it is very, very demanding to achieve it. You have to really have given much of your life to the game and uh, lost a great deal along the way. You, you know, you have to play a lot and keep on learning, and keep going. Um, so yeah, it's certainly something. It's a lifelong title, and I'm, I'm proud of it. Uh, but like I say, there is variation within grandmasters. So the the you know the, there's always scope to get even better. You write about the idea that our figurative wounds can be the best part of us, that these wounds suggest caring enough about something to be vulnerable and handling your wounds the right way can also help you grow as a person. I'm curious to know what your greatest wound is, first as a chess player and then as a person walking around on this planet, and how did each of those things help you mature? Gosh, um, well... I mean, as a chess player, I can't pinpoint a specific wound, but there's a recurring experience of frustration when you often spoil a good game and many great thoughts leading to good moves only to be squandered by something much more foolish or a sort of prosaic oversight that was beneath you in some way, but it it ruined the entire game. 
So the, there is this sort of ambient wounding in the chess experience because you, you're, you're never that far from doing something regretful. Um, but in life, I suppose, as I discussed in the book, um, you know, I did, I don't, in some ways I had quite a happy childhood, but I also had to go through quite a lot of challenging things. My um, parents splitting up, for example, my, my father had a, a kind of mental illness, schizophrenia, um, as did my brother laterally. And throughout that time, uh, chess was a way of sublimating some of those experiences. It was a way of making sense when the world around me didn't make sense. So um, I think the important thing to take from that part of the book is that we, we tend to want to explain away these aspects of our life that, you know, that we just get over them somehow. But actually, there's something about our wounds that are the truest and best parts of ourselves. It's, it's the sort of raw material through which we individuate. It can also speak to a level of failure, and as you know from being successful yourself and being around other successful people, the only way that you truly grow is by not just failing, but learning from those failures as well. Yeah, um, you learn from failure, but, but I think it's, it's also important to learn about the limits of success. So there, there is the straightforward idea of you keep on learning, you keep getting better, there's no limit to your ambition. But in the book, I also try and you know, question that a little bit. There, there's something to be said for um, recognizing your out, you know, the boundaries of your achievement, the limits of them. Uh, they may not be infinite. You, know, you may have a great capacity to grow and you may have scope to become significantly better. But it can actually be very helpful to say, look, I'm not going to be world champion. You know, and, and, and actually through realizing that I can be a better player than if I'm desperately beating myself up every day trying to be something I can never possibly be. So in my own case, I, ha- I had some recognition of my upper limits. Um, and I think it's quite a helpful thing for people to have. Paradoxically, I think you need that sense of constraint to actually fill out your full capacity rather than the slightly the prevailing idea that's that's somewhat false that says there's no limits to your potential. Um, I think it's quite helpful to have limits. Limits help to demarcate what you should do with your time and energy. Um, and I think we could use a bit more of that in culture, a bit less of the kind of people full of hot air saying you can be anything you want to be. And a little bit more, yes, you can be much better. You can do many more things. Yes, of course. But equally, there are some constraints and you know you can define yourself through them. And regarding this complacency and accepting failure because of the uh, the so-called lessons that can be learned, you actually describe an experience in 2000 where you'd been beaten by a young Russian grandmaster, and uh, afterward two different experienced grandmasters approached you asking what happened in the earlier match. You responded with a simple and almost cliched, I learned, but they pointed out Ooh. that there there to learn necessarily you were there to win and that it was high time to start teaching your opponents the lessons that uh, you thought you that you yourself were learning where is that line uh, between failing and learning and then starting to apply those things to where you are failing less right great question so yes the, the key idea here is um, it, it's by looking more closely at the cliche so we, we often say it's not it's not about winning or losing, it's taking, taking part that counts. Right? Many of us have heard a version of that line. And it's partly true. So it is true that ultimately, winning and losing is not where it's at. Ultimately, it's about the meaning of the game, the human beings taking place in it, the wider meaning of life as a whole, 
These are your ultimate touchstones. The winning and losing is a kind of pretext. Um, and so in a sense, it doesn't ultimately matter. But there's a twist on that. The twist is that it's only when you really accept the premise that the game matters, when you're willing to surrender yourself to that conceit, if you like, that you can actually experience the emotions and the intensity of the competition in such a way that the game becomes meaningful. If you don't actually accept the premise that the game matters, you don't accept that winning and losing is important, you'll never really know that depth of intensity and experience that you need to learn anything worthwhile learning at all. So in a, in a way, you can't play just to learn unless you're willing to play wholeheartedly to win. And mm. that's my way of trying to resolve that conundrum. It's like you need both. To really learn, you have to put yourself on the line. It's fantastic advice there. And you also cite the American amateur player, Brian Wall, who says, chess is basically a fight between the pain of losing and the pain of thinking. I love that quote, and you obviously did too if you included it in this book. After you read this quote, you gained a newfound appreciation for draws or ties in the game of chess because draws provide a... Uh, reprieve, I guess, from both kinds of pain. But you also point out that life doesn't really have anything like a draw in chess, but it should. Why is that? Well, it's funny. In chess, something very strange happens that people outside of the game often wonder about. But in essence, at almost any stage of the game, you can offer your opponent a draw. You can, you can, sort of, you can say, let's cease hostilities. Let's not try and kill each other anymore. Let's just agree to split the point. Um, you won't get the glory of winning, but nor, nor will you get the pain of defeat. It often seems like quite a good idea, you know, um, partly for the Brian Hall quote mentioned, is like, you don't have to think anymore and you don't have the pain of losing. Um, however, as I've said before, there's a bit, it's a bit of a cop-out. You know, if you, if you only ever agree draws, you never really get that. Well, first of all, you don't get the great success, but also you don't get the deep learning that comes with trying to push yourself beyond your limits. Um, and in terms of life, well, there are things resembling the draw offer in life. For example, negotiators sometimes bracket certain clauses of agreements. So, you know, sort of thorny issues will come back to later. Uh, they say, okay, we won't deal with that now, we'll move on. And then there are, there are ways of sort of, um, in, you know, marriages, sometimes when it gets to divorces, you can actually sort of uh, conclude something without sort of properly resolving it. So there are you know, things that are a bit analogous to the offer. But what you would like sometimes in life is to say, look, all of this fighting, and we just agree that we're both partly right. Hmm. Um, and once we agree that we're both partly right and partly wrong, maybe then we can take the heat out of this and sit down and figure out in what ways are partly right and partly wrong. Boy, that middle ground seems to be fast disappearing throughout the world, regardless of which country you're in, and uh, that is a scary thing because you're right. The middle ground, or that gray area, seems to be where most of us reside. It's these uh, these influences on the outer edges that uh, seem to be the most vocal about things at times. It feels like that, and um, it, it does. I agree with you that there is a kind of polarization going on around the world, and that that may be something to do with are forms of technology that are compounding that in various ways. Um, yeah, no question. But it's also about a kind of tribalism too. It's about who we feel comfortable talking to and, and the risk of that perpetuating itself. But I, I would like to think there's still some hope in the fact that there are, we have pre-political identities. You know, Before we vote for anyone or have a particular way of viewing the world, 
we have a great deal in common that's nothing to do with that. Um, it's just that we don't really have the fora and you know forms of culture that allow us to spend time with people like that um, and connect in a way that isn't politicized. So Jonathan, I have a five-year-old daughter who is interested in learning chess right now. She's in a school where they do offer chess as an after-school class, one of the uh, the, the three to uh, five to seven p.m. classes that she can uh, learn. And uh, I'm encouraged by the fact that she wants to learn chess. Uh, for you as somebody who has taught younger people, is there a good starting point for a young student, someone as young as the age of five, to get them to better understand the game of chess? I think when you're that young, the key is the atmosphere surrounding the game. You need to know the person well and figure out what are they drawn by. Are they drawn by the the beauty of the ideas? Are they drawn by the intellectual stretch? Are they drawn by something about the geometry and the aesthetics? Uh, Is it more to do with the love of winning? Is there a particular piece that they're drawn to, maybe? Um, I think once you work at that level of sort of emotional compatibility and, and the sense of comfort with the game, then you're laying a foundation for a long-term relationship with it. The risk is that if you start too early on, here's how you win, win the game, and here's how you beat the guy, um, that risk being a little bit lacking resilience, I think. Um, but I mean, in terms of teaching, there's a certain, I think love for the, the beauty of the logic of the game is something that I try and instill very early. And you, you can model that as the teacher. You can just show it in your enthusiasm for the ideas, the excitement you feel for the moves. And the children pick up on that. and They, they want to experience it themselves, so they go hunting for it too. Well, she's getting a chessboard for Christmas, so I'm going to take you up on some of that advice there, and thank you very much for that. Just speaking generally, yeah. how, do, uh, how does teaching a child chess benefit them over their lifetime? Well, this is a moot point, and uh, you know th- there's some studies on this, and there's some sort of philosophical understanding of this question. Um, my my view is that if you play chess for several years, um, well, it, well, to back up for one second, there's a lovely line by Aldous Huxley. He says, "Experience is not what happens to you; it's what you do with what happens to you." So I think with the, with chess, it's just like that. It doesn't inevitably teach you anything, really. It's not uh, a foregone conclusion that immersion in chess will lead to better exam results or better behavior or uh, anything of that nature. However, what is quite likely is that if you have the capacity to learn from it, it's a very rich source of learning. So really, the, the, the way of answering the question is to flip it slightly and say, what do you need to know and be to make the most of the chess experience as a learning device? And that's a slightly different educational question. That's about what do we know about our learning dispositions, our thinking dispositions, our capacity to reason, our capacity to pause for thought, our capacity to think from the other side's perspective, our ability to plan, as we've spoken about already, our ability to change our mind and not feel okay with that, our comfort with mistakes. All of these things are not chess-specific, but by having them, when when you approach chess, you can then get a great deal from the game. Because it's such a rich testing ground for ideas. You're constantly being tested by the opponent. And then the wonderful thing about the game, which some people are you know, amazed by, is just that you can start again. You know, like life, where often you're 
you don't have so many second chances. In chess, you know, the pieces do go back to the start and uh, you have a new game. And, and that, that's a liberation for many people because you can keep on learning in that way. Jonathan, regarding your career in chess, you mentioned some of the best and even most mundane places that you've played chess. What is the strangest environment and or set of circumstances that you were involved with playing professional chess? Well, um, there have been some quirky places. I mean, I remember being on the Fatal Islands, for example, which is a very remote part of the world, um, not that far from Iceland. Um, and uh, I've also been to some very beautiful places, but the, the place that comes to mind most for you when you ask this question is landing in Tel Aviv Airport in Israel on the night uh, that Ishak Rabin was assassinated. Um, and that was a very important political moment for the world. Wow. It was like the, the Israel peace process, Israel-Palestine peace process was um, already tense, but making some progress. And then this assassination threw everything up in the air again. And what was odd about that is that I, I landed in the airport to play the European Under-20 Championship. Um, but what I remember most about the event was being driven from the airport to my hotel by a taxi driver who was weeping in the car at the news. And he was just an ordinary human being caught up in this vast geopolitical com- you know, context. Um, and I was just a kind of you know, innocent traveler in a sense you know, who wasn't really part of that world, but was suddenly right in the heart of it. Um, so there have been moments like that where you're caught up in the intensity of things. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's a great blessing. If you get good enough at chess, it's such a global language that it can take you anywhere. You expressed an appreciation for chess appearing in the HBO show The Wire. Why did you enjoy that mm-hmm. so much? Well, there's, a few, there's a, one scene in particular that I mentioned in the book where they're using chess as an analogy for the drug scene in a way that's dark but sort of deliciously so because one of the characters um, becomes aware that pawns can be promoted into queens. Um, And the other one points out to him that, look, uh, it very rarely happens. Most of the times pawns get captured. And it's a very thinly veiled metaphor saying for these guys who are relatively low in the rung of the drugs hierarchy, that their chance of getting shot quite soon was pretty high. But they stayed in the game because they were promised that somehow they'd get rich. And as the series guild goes on, um, there is even a reference back to this scene where um, one of them realizes that they've been a pawn all along. They thought it might become uh, a greater piece, something more powerful, but they realized they've, been, they've kind of been played. So I find the scene... Uh, true to chess and to life and just wanted to sort of reflect on it as someone who is writing a book about both. With as much as computer-driven analytics have infiltrated all sports, computers' roles in chess may go back further than any. Uh, of course, many people think of Kasparov versus Deep Blue as a primary primary example of that. Uh, do you consider computers more of a positive or negative for the game of chess? I think I'd have to say positive, but as I say that, I'm wondering how much of that social pressure not to be a technophobe. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it, feels, it feels true to say it's positive because, first of all, the internet gives you access to players around the world, and then computer technology in the form of analysis engines helps you understand very fast what's happening in a position. 
And it is a kind of progress at that limited level for understanding the game and playing it. But I must confess that something is also lost. There was something beautifully analog about the game, the wooden pieces and the human mind coming together that I feel a certain nostalgia for too. Um, And then the broader point with any technological change, uh, as I write in the book, is that we often think it's like how powerful is the technology, how clever is it, uh, how cool is it sometimes. But with any given technological development, the real question is who owns this and what do they want? And are their interests aligned with ours? Because that's where it gets, starts to get interesting vis-a-vis artificial intelligence or robotics or um, synthetic biology or, um, I don't know, virtual reality. And, and, and these things, when they start to come together in some form, um, life as we know it begins to look different. So in some ways with technology, the key is to make it our servant, not our master. Um, but the risk is that we develop it to a point where we can no longer see the distinction. It seems like if we reach that point, it will be because computers are all of a sudden able to become more creative than their human counterparts. And we haven't seen that in general life yet necessarily, but considering how advanced AI is with regards to playing the game of chess, have you started to see examples where the computer is more creative than even some of the most creative grandmasters who play the game? Well, we're into an interesting discussion here about what creativity is and whether it makes sense for something that's artificially intelligent to be creative. Um, that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's a conundrum. I'm not sure what the answer is there. In terms of what I've observed, um, there are certainly beautiful games. I mean, Alpha Zero um, played some extraordinary games of chess against another computer program quite recently, and that's considered the strongest of all the available computer programs. And yes, I could say they look creative uh, mm-hmm. by human standards. But then when you think about what that means, um, it's not conventionally creative as we come to think of it. It's still a form of raw computational power. Um, and I suppose I, I feel the real issue with AI that we have to keep sight of is that the question was never whether humans were more intelligent than computers because in a weird way, whenever it comes to something domain specific like chess, computers sooner or later computers will become more intelligent. The issue is about general intelligence. It's really a question about whether we can ever imagine anything being like human beings are in a more general sense. And in that sense, I would say our advantage over computers is not intelligence, it's consciousness. It's the fact that we're aware of the game, that we love it, that it's beautiful, that we designed it that we can, you know, all, all things said and done, if we have to, we can even unplug the computer. That we're, that we're conscious is the ultimate advantage. It's not clear if computers will ever become conscious. I think it's quite unlikely, personally, but that's an open question. <laughs> we'll go from something pretty heavy to something a little bit lighter, hopefully. How did your chess experiences prove useful when you became a father in May of 2009? Well, as you know, in the, the book I write about what they taught me about changing diapers, as you'd call them. Um, but more generally, I think there's something about chess that gives you a very strong appreciation for the opponent. Um, and it's not as though your child becomes an opponent as such, but there is this other mind in the household suddenly. There's suddenly someone with needs and desires and uh, that are entirely different from your own. And I think there is something about the chess sensibility that says, 
that is inclined to ask, what does this being want? You know, what is, what is this other creature that's now in my life? What are they looking for? It gives you a certain amount of cognitive empathy, you could say. Um, and uh, in that sense, um, I think it helps. Um, but in, 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 the, in the book, I also have a few stories about, you know, making sense of things with my kids and the, some of the analogies that Chess brought me. But overall, I think the main thing is it gives you an awareness of other people's minds and a certain curiosity towards them, which I hope helps with children. That's very well said there, Jonathan. Now, what is soft power, and why does learning about soft power potentially ruin one's love for Hollywood movies and Olympic medals? <laughs> right. Well, um, soft power is, is like the power of attraction uh, as opposed to the power of force. So um, it's, it's a concept used to convey, often in an ideological context, it, with chess, uh, when there was a famous Fischer-Spassky match in Reykjavik in 1972, that was a kind of uh, key moment of soft power in which, um, in some ways, it didn't really matter who won that chess match. It was a you know, game between two guys, ultimately. But one of them represented the USSR, and one of them represented the USA, and there was a Cold War on at the time. And so the game took on this soft power significance. In other words, whichever country won, would be able to say uh, we are the, 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 we are the country that produces the more intelligent people, or something of that ilk. It would, that's how it would be spun. Um, and soft power uh, is used in all sorts of ways. Um, like at the Beijing Beijing Olympics, where they had their opening ceremony, it was an astounding display of precision and technical brilliance. And you know you can see that again as just kind of an aesthetic or dance routine, but this was really Beijing saying we're a superpower now. You know, this is now our time. Um, so soft, soft power operates as a kind of communication that's, that invites people in rather than forcing them to do something. It, it does it by saying, uh, look at us. Aren't we cool? Come and join us. You write about regret and do a great job in the process. What is your greatest regret? I actually don't have regrets as such. I mean, I think when you, you know, I, I can say casually, there were moments, for example, when I was playing well and I was still only maybe 29, I could certainly have climbed higher up the world rankings. You know, there were limits. I, I'm not going to say I could have gone all the way to the top by any means, but I could certainly have climbed a bit further, maybe into the world top 100, maybe even, you know, comfortably inside it. But um, when I, do I really regret that? Not really, because I think if you examine regret closely, it's a bit of a false concept. You've got to sort of accept that at some level, you made your decision for whatever reason at the time. And the key is just in good faith to accept that. Learn from it as much as you can and, and, and keep moving. You just don't know. You don't have alternative universes in which you made other decisions that you can be sure about. Um, where, you know, where you can say things would have been better if I'd done X, Y, or Z. Because you just can't be sure. Um, and so it, it doesn't bear thinking about it. Better just to understand why you did what you did. Forgive yourself. Um, gently regret it maybe, but, but don't hold on to the regret and move on. One of my favorite quotes of all time came from Mark Twain. He said that there are three types of lies, lies, damned lies, and statistics. You actually quote something similar from Einstein, who gave the sage advice, not everything can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. Why is this so important to you? Well, for lots of reasons. One, in a chess context, it, it relates to 
what we call materialism, which is you learn very early after you learn how the pieces move, how much they're worth. So pawns are r- roughly one point, knights and bishops roughly three, rooks roughly five, queens roughly nine. Um, and they op- that operates as a way of judging, you know, sort of keeping score almost. As you capture the opponent's pieces and they capture yours, you get a sort of sense of uh, who's winning and who's losing on that point basis. But the, the important proviso is that um, there's much more going on than those material issues. And the analogy here with the world is that you can have a figure like gross domestic, domestic produce or um, any other economic metric, including uh, your own wealth or the value of your home or whatever. And the risk is that you confuse the value of that with what's really a value in life. Um, and so somehow we have to get to a point where we recognize, look, numbers are not going away. How we, how, you know, what gets measured gets done, how we measure things matters. On the other hand, we have to develop a certain sophistication towards whatever numbers we use to realize that they're always a kind of map of our own choosing. And if we choose to measure something else instead, we can. Um, so I think it's about accepting the limits of measurement as a way of making sense of the world and realizing that measurements are always inherently loaded with all sorts of values and assumptions. What is ontological guilt, and why is chess ultimately about trying to purge ontological guilt? Oh, I love these questions. Great. So, um, well, ontological guilt is a, is a notion um, from a Buddhist writer called David Loy, whom I admire. Um, and it's the, it's the guilt of sensing that you're not quite real. So it's something that human beings sometimes experience, this, this sense of unreality that uh, all you are ultimately is, is this sort of bundle of physiology with some memory. Um, and that if you get hit in the, wrong, in the head in the wrong way, suddenly you can forget your memory uh, and not be yourself anymore, and that yourself is that kind of fragile. Um, ontological guilt is a way of you know, realizing the world is obliging you to, to be somebody and have this sort of core self and, and fundamental notion of who you are, but also sensing it's constructed and fragile and a bit artificial, and that really we don't know who we are, and that what we are is a kind of story of ourselves. Um, so ontological guilt is that experience. It's one of sort of the gap between how we're performing and what we actually feel. And, and, and the reason chess is somewhat relevant to that is that I think when we play chess, we take on this strong identity of being a person who wants to win. And for a while, we can quiet the mind that's questioning who we are and what we should be. Because while we're playing, it's absolutely clear what we should be. We're the people who's making the next. We're the people who are making the next move, trying to checkmate the opponent. Well, and for anybody listening right now who is considering buying the moves that matter, a chess grandmaster on the game of life by Jonathan Rosen, for somebody who does actually purchase the book and read it, what is maybe one thing that you hope they take away from reading this great book, if nothing else? Um, honestly, it's a kind of love of life. I think it's it's a kind of a, a sort of deeply forgiving book of, of the, you know, the attempt to sort of live well, making mistakes along the way. Um, but it, 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 it's a, I sometimes call it an accidental memoir. I didn't really set out to write about me as such. And it's also a kind of an accidental self-help book. I didn't really mean to set out to give any kind of advice. But in the process of asking the question, what does chess mean? And why did I spend so long trying to, trying to get good at it? 
these questions, these other questions arose. You know, what's it all for? Who are we? What are we living for? Um, but I think the main thing I'd like people to feel is that they like themselves a bit more after reading the book, that they sort of identify with it in some way, see themselves in my life, see themselves in the chess struggle. Um, and even though they haven't lived either of those things, that they can feel more true to themselves as a result. Well, Jonathan, uh, for the last 15 years now, or uh, just about 15 years, ever since I first read Gary Kasparov's How Life Imitates Chess, I found myself drawn to books about chess that try to relate it to the way we go about living our lives. And uh, I got to tell you, The Moves That Matter goes much deeper than Gary did nearly 15 years ago, and it is a fantastic read for anybody who loves chess or anybody who loves uh, ideas about uh, how we go about handling the various aspects uh, of our existence. It is The Moves That Matter, a chess grandmaster on the game of life. He is Jonathan Rosen, and he has been nice enough to join me today. Jonathan, thank you so much for the time. Such a pleasure. Thanks for the questions.